0: If you have a Bible with you tonight, go ahead and find a couple of places. Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. So if you weren't with us last Wednesday, we kicked off a new study titled Looking for Jesus, Searching for Christ in the Old Testament. And we began by laying a foundation of why we need to see Jesus in all of Scripture, why it's important uh, that we're looking for Jesus. And specifically, uh, we want to undertake this study because as we see Christ in the Old Testament, it's helping us to read the Old Testament correctly. Uh, the Old Testament isn't simply a book of examples. It's not simply teaching us moral lessons or how to be good people. The Old Testament is there uh, in, uh, in the same vein of, of all Scripture, to show us Christ. So we want to see Christ in the Old Testament, to understand it correctly. Furthermore, by beholding the glory of Jesus in Scripture, spiritual transformation then takes place in our lives. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.18 that we looked at last Sunday, Paul said uh, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another by beholding the glory of the Lord. And we see the glory of the Lord most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the express image of the nature of God. Uh, John says in in the prologue of his gospel, we beheld uh, his glory, uh, speaking of Jesus. And so we, we need to see Jesus in the scriptures so that transformation happens in our lives. As we behold the glory of Christ, our lives are then conformed to his. And uh, that's what we long for. We want to see His glory so that we can become more like Him. And finally, as we glimpse more of Jesus, uh, we're compelled to go and tell others about Him. Uh, that's that's a, an important part of why we want to see Him in Scripture, that as we see Him, and behold Him, as we become uh, consumed by Him, uh, we then want to share Him with others. Uh, I think of um, the beginning of the gospels where jesus was calling his disciples and uh was an andrew who found his brother nathaniel and he said come and see we found him of whom moses and the prophets spoke come and see we found the one that the old testament scriptures tell us about i want you to come see so as we see him we want others to see him as well well when we began looking for jesus in the old testament we don't have to go very far uh, in fact, he's there on the very first page. When we look for Jesus in the Old Testament, we must be sure to see him in creation. And so as we began to go through the study of looking for Jesus, we begin tonight by seeing him in creation, that he is the Christ of creation. And so if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to read uh, from these chapters tonight. Genesis 1, very familiar verse. Most of you know it, but it's where we begin. And in this beginning, we focus on Christ. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, sounds kind of similar, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then we go on, and we realize in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And, And of course, he's talking about Jesus. Now go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Listen to verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now go with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now before we get to digging, let me just quickly state that those last three passages that we looked at, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, are three out of the four Uh, Christological passages of the New Testament, passages that speak uh, highly of Christ and his nature, his identity. And you'll notice that in those three, each one makes direct reference and mention of his action in creation. So there's a strong connection that we must see between Christ and creation. We need to see Christ in creation. Creation is prominent not only at the beginning of the Old Testament, which we see in Genesis 1 and 2, but that theme is carried throughout. Creation is a major theme in all the Bible. In fact, we can say the Bible is entirely about creation. The Bible opens with creation, and the Bible closes with the new creation. And while these passages clearly point us to creation... Standing as the bookends of Scripture, the theme of creation is woven throughout. Many times we see this in the pages of Scripture, in a particular pattern, that of chaos, creation, uncreation, and new creation. We see it in the beginning, as there's kind of chaos, spirit hovering over the waters of the deep, but then God speaks into that, and comes order and arrangement and detail, creation. And then we have the uncreation of the flood, and then The new creation coming out of that chaos and that pattern tends to repeat itself throughout Scripture in several, several ways. But I say that and I stress that because I want you to realize there's a strong connection with creation and Christ. And so that's where we begin, by learning to look for Christ in creation. I want us to really focus in tonight on the creation account that's found at the beginning of Scripture. Scripture. Because after all, if you get it wrong at the start, you'll be even more wrong at the finish, right? So we've got to get off to a good start. So we start at the beginning. We start with the creation account of Genesis. And in them, we look for Christ. Dave Murray writes, We approach these chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, not just with a question, What do they tell me about the world? And not just with, What do they tell me about God? But also with, what do they tell me about my Savior? So as we read about creation in the beginning, and as we see glimpses of it woven throughout, and ultimately as it comes to an end with the new creation, we see Christ. And I just want to give you three ways that you can see Christ in creation. That you see Jesus in this theme of creation at the beginning and throughout. So number one, we need, to see, we need to see Jesus as creation's author. Jesus as creation's author, or creation's agent, if you will. Now when we think about who created the heavens and the earth, we rightfully think of God. But scripture is clear. All three persons of the Godhead were present in creation. As much as God the Father is there in Genesis 1, so is God the Son, and so is God the Spirit. John makes this clear, Paul makes this clear, the Hebrew writer makes this clear. In fact, John tells us in John 1.10 that as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word which was there in the beginning and was God and was with God, that as that Word stepped into creation, becoming part of that which He had made, The world denied its creator. They loved darkness rather than light. Uh, they, They preferred death over life. And that's the problem with our world today. They reject their creator. They reject their designer. So much of sin today is the rejection of the order that God has put in place. The order in which Christ made the universe. Christ is the source, the origin, the agent, the author of creation. As we understand that, we can see how creation speaks of him and about him. We see in Genesis 1, as Jesus being the author of creation, that he is incredibly powerful. He is incredibly powerful. The creation account teaches us that Christ operated in bringing creation about ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created everything out of no thing. And as he did that, he did it through the word, the power of his word, the word that was spoken. Eight times in Genesis 1, in relation to creating, the scriptures tell us God said. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the waters be separated, and they were separated. God said, the light and the darkness be separated, it was separated. God said, and it was. And that reveals to us the incredible power which Jesus possesses in his word. We see that clearly in his earthly ministry, don't we? We've seen it in our study of Mark's gospel you remember in Mark chapter 4 as Jesus was on the boat with his disciples crossing over the, the sea there and the great storm came upon them and Jesus was down there taking him a nap. And they woke him up. I can't believe they woke him up. How frustrating that might have been. <laughs> Nevertheless, they woke him up. They were filled with great fear, Mark tells us. So they woke Jesus up. And don't you care that we're about to die? Can't you see things are really bad? And remember what Jesus did? He stepped out on the bow and he spoke and he said, peace, be still. And what happened? The wind ceased and the waves, they went flat. They were suddenly calm. And then the disciples were filled with a whole different kind of fear. It wasn't the fear of their lives being taken from them, but it was the the fear of the one in whose presence they were. Mark four forty one. they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, of course they do. Because they obeyed him in creation when he said, This is what you do, and this is where you go, and this is where you will be. He is the author of creation. And it reminds us of the immense power that he possesses in the speaking of his word. And, of course, in his gospel ministry, we get glimpse after glimpse that Jesus possesses this power not only over the seas and the elements, but over disease, over demons, and even over death itself. Remember as he stood at the tomb of Lazarus, the great King James translation? Lord, by now he stinketh. It's a stinking mess inside that tomb. And what did Jesus say? Lazarus, come out. Come out. And what did Lazarus do? He came out. Uh, the, Puritan, the Puritan preachers uh, they said in regards to that text that had Jesus not mentioned Lazarus by name and simply said, come out, that every dead body in every tomb in that area would have walked out of their graves. But he spoke. And life came out of death. He spoke and seas went calm. He spoke and demons were exercised. He spoke and diseases were cured. How can He do that? Because He's the Christ of creation. He's the author of creation. And creation came about through the spoken word of a holy God. Uh, we see uh, His wisdom in creation as well. It shows us that Christ possesses infinite wisdom. In the creation account of Genesis, we see an order and an arrangement to the days as they unfold. There's intentionality on display. There's a development and a plan that's put into place. So what we realize through creation is that nothing is accidental or coincidental. It is purposeful, always moving toward a goal. This is why we're so adamant that creation came through God, and not merely through evolution. To hold to the evolution theory of creation, uh, that, that, that things just happen to come this way. If that's what you truly believe, then you truly believe there's no meaning or purpose to life whatsoever. We're just here by happenstance and by accident. And how encouraging is that? But to know that Christ created That he was there speaking and arranging and ordering things with infinite wisdom. Oh, what a great encouragement that is to us. Paul picks up on this when he gives us the beautiful promise that we love from Romans 8. He says, We know that those who love God, uh, that for those who love God, he is working all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. He's working all things for good. This is what he's doing in creation. He's putting things in order. He's working things for good. He's working things toward a goal with intentionality. He's the Christ of creation. And then ultimately, as we think about him being the author of creation, we understand his goodness as well. His goodness. Back in Genesis 1, seven times in that one chapter, Moses records God as saying, it was good. And at the end, he says, it is very good. Well, as he looks at what he has made and and makes that statement, it's a reflection of the character of the one who has made those things. Those things can only be good because the Creator is good. And what we realize is that Jesus is gloriously good. He's there in creation as its agent, as its author, bringing things out of nothing into their place, arranging with order and intentionality, exercising his divine power, displaying his infinite goodness. I've shared with you this quote before, but I always love another opportunity to do it again. I think it's the best line that C.S. Lewis gives us in the entirety of the Chronicles of Narnia. It comes in the line, the witch, in the wardrobe as the four children have met the beavers there in Narnia. If you're not familiar with those stories, the animals talk in Narnia. And Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver are good animals in Narnia, and they've befriended the Pavinsi children, and they're informing them about Aslan, the main character, the lion who represents Christ. And in this scene, the beavers say, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And then the youngest of the children, Susan, speaks up and says, Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's good. Of course he isn't safe. He's an infinitely glorious God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is a consuming fire. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good good and we see that in creation it speaks to us of the goodness of christ because what he created he said was very good secondly as we look for christ in creation we need to see that creation is redemption's arena that creation is redemption's arena Before there was a creation, there was a plan of redemption. Let me say that again. Before there was a creation, there was a plan of redemption. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. John's revelation of Jesus at the end of Scripture, Revelation 13, verse 8, he he picks up on this as well. He says, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So in these two verses, we, we get an understanding that before there was creation, the plan of redemption already was in the mind of God. That God didn't create and then said, how can I redeem? No, God had a plan of redemption and then set about a creation. And so what that leads us to understand is that creation then becomes the arena in which redemption will unfold. So when Christ, as the agent of creation, created this world, he did so with the understanding that it would be the stage that he would step upon to fulfill his purpose in redemption. Jonathan Edwards captures this with these words. This world, he writes, was doubtless created to be a stage upon which this great, wonderful work of redemption should be transacted. So when we think of creation, when we see creation in the Old Testament, when we see the theme of creation unfolding throughout Scripture, we need to connect it to the plan of redemption to the redemption that Christ came to accomplish. That is why creation was put into place, so that this plan could then be fulfilled. One commentator said, Jesus designed the props, the background, the lighting, the set, the actors, and so forth. He made sure that everything was suited to the redemption he planned to perform. He created sheep so that he could teach sinners about how he is the good shepherd. He created birds to help his redeemed people live less anxious lives. He created camels to teach how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter heaven. He created lilies and roses so he could compare himself in glory with them. He created water to explain how he refreshes and revives the thirsty soul. When Jesus picked up Uh, Some 4,000 years, these things, after their creation, they were not just coincidentally helpful to him. No, he deliberately created them for the great end of helping to redeem a people. And think of how Jesus even created what would be used in his own crucifixion. What did he think when he made the trees, one of which would one day suspend him between heaven and earth? What did he think when he made the metal that would eventually impale him on the cross? He made what would be used to cause him pain and kill him. He created the arena and all the corresponding accessories of redemption. Think about that. Creation is the stage upon which salvation unfolds. And the Lord has put it in place so that we may behold his glory And the blazing hot center of His glory is seen most clearly in what Christ has done for us in His Gospel. So as we think about creation, as we see it in the Old Testament at the beginning, as we see it throughout Scripture, we must always connect it to the plan of redemption, for that is why creation is here. And then third creation points us to salvation's achievement. Creation points us to salvation's achievement. One of the ways we can learn to read Scripture correctly is by looking at how the New Testament authors interpreted the Old Testament Scriptures. The New Testament is the divinely inspired Word of God, and so as they're writing about the Old Testament Scriptures, they're giving us a right interpretation of it. They're they're giving us, the big word is a hermeneutic, they're giving us uh, the skill, the method by which we can read Scripture in the correct way. And what we discover is that so often in the New Testament, the authors describe Christian salvation using vocabulary from the original creation. Creation teaching us that one of the best ways to understand our salvation and our Savior is by seeing it in connection to the creation account. Jesus, the apostles, they used the creation theme to explain, to provide understanding of how God redeems the soul of a sinner. This is how they look back on the Old Testament and how they... They saw it and understood it in light of who Jesus is. And again, I would remind you in in Luke 24, as Jesus is walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's interpreting the Scriptures in light of himself. And and he tells them, uh, Luke tells us he began with Moses. Genesis is the book of Moses. It's the book of the Torah. He began here in Genesis 1 and explained all things concerning himself. So creation and Jesus' action and bringing it about points us to his action in the new creation that he brings about through his gospel. This is why John begins his gospel in the fashion that he does. This is why he echoes the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. John is cluing us in that what he is going to describe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is writing is how Jesus brings about a new creation. And isn't it interesting that when we get to the end of John's gospel, and we can even look in between chapter 1 and chapter 20 at all the other instances where John is playing off of light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness. That's from Genesis 1 as well. But at the end, the post-resurrection appearance with Jesus in the upper room with the disciples, in John twenty, as he spoke to them, John says he breathed on them, and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Now, why in the world do you think Jesus would go around breathing on people? It's my breath. Resurrection breath is good. There's no morning breath in resurrection. This is good. No. He breathed upon them. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, what did the Lord do to Adam? He breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. And in the new creation that is coming about through the author of creation, providing redemption through the gospel, Jesus is showing us that in me now you become made new. You become a living soul for eternity. Paul captures it very clearly. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ Jesus, he is what? A new creation. A new creation. So creation points us to salvation's achievement, its accomplishment. And in that we see Christ. Sidney Grudanus, I was introduced to uh, Grudanus and his works as I was doing some of my seminary studies. And one of the things that so uh, drew me to him was the the focus that he had on preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And Gridanus writes about seven methods that we can employ to faithfully preach Christ from the Old Testament. And one of those is what he refers to as longitudinal themes. Now that simply means that in the Old Testament, there are themes that run a long ways through Scripture. Think longitudinal, long ways through scripture, themes that, that weave their way throughout. And one of those themes is creation. And so, in creation, there are certain elements that we look at, that we see throughout, and then the fulfillment of those things coming to pass in redemptive history through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you three of them that are here in the very beginning the person of Adam. The person of Adam. Adam is presented to us here, and the act of creation is the image bearer of God. Ultimately, Adam falls into sin, plunges all of humanity into sin with him. But what we discover is that Adam is a representative of all mankind, but Jesus in his gospel comes to us as the new Adam, and ultimately the last Adam. He is the representative of righteousness on our behalf who succeeded where the first Adam failed in creation. This is what Paul writes about in Romans 5. He talks about how by one man sin entered into the world and death through sin so that death spread to all men because all sin. He's speaking about Adam. But he goes on and he says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Paul is picking up this contrast between between the first Adam and Jesus as the last Adam, the second Adam, the fulfillment of the creation mandate. And through Jesus Christ and his righteousness, by faith in him, we no longer face death, but now we receive life. This is why in the Gospels we have the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He faced the temptation from Satan himself after 40 days of fasting. But unlike Adam in a garden, who failed, Christ, as our representative and as the righteous one, succeeded and did not succumb to the temptation. So we see it in Adam. We see it in the picture of marriage. Marriage is a creation, uh, an institute of creation. It's here in Genesis 1 and 2 where God brings together Adam and Eve. Paul tells us in the New Testament that the purpose of that picture in marriage is profound because he says it refers to Christ and the church. That he's given us this relationship between spouses, husband and wife, to be a picture of a greater fulfillment between what Christ is accomplishing for his church. And then it's here in the creation account where the Sabbath is introduced, the day of rest. God did not rest in creation because he was tired or wore out. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. But the Sabbath was instituted for the benefit of mankind and humanity, to orient us to God, but ultimately to teach us about a greater rest that Christ gives us in salvation. This is why it's so important that we understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, and 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for what? your souls. Jesus is the fulfillment of the ultimate Sabbath rest. He brings our souls to a place of resting in Him, abandoning self-righteousness and trusting solely in Him as a means to enter into the eternal rest that we have with God forever. So even in creation, we see Christ. And as we see Him, may we hope in Him. May we trust in Him, and may we glorify Him as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word tonight. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to see Christ as the agent and author of creation, that He was there bringing out of nothing everything putting into place the stage that he would step into to accomplish the plan of redemption for our souls. Father, we thank you for a creator like that. And Father, help us to see him. Help us to see this connection between creation and new creation between the institutes of creation and how they have been fulfilled ultimately and completely in Christ as the true and better Adam, as the ultimate husband, the groom, and us, the church, as the bride, through the rest that we long for eternally. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Sustain our souls by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.